you never allow your hater to bring you down to his or her level. Always reach up. Always reach up. And love is up. Where do you turn when you want to learn about how to have a conversation about these sensitive racial subjects that have been emerging in such an intense way over the last few weeks? One person I immediately thought of going to is Dean Helen Williams. Uh, She's an impressive person by almost every criteria, educationally, professionally, her service in the community. She's someone who is thoughtful and disciplined in pursuing what really matters, in pursuing an essential life. And I wanted to have a conversation that normally we don't have. This conversation is helpful, it's insightful, it's honest, it's open, it's vulnerable, it's full of love and compassion and wisdom. I wholeheartedly recommend it to you. I think you're going to enjoy it. I, for one, feel optimistic that great things lie ahead, an opportunity to tear down an old system that is largely invisible to many of us and rebuild something that enables us to be closer to the one heart, one mind, united community, country, world we really seek. So wherever you are listening to this, I hope that you'll listen with both ears, but also more important with your heart as we have this conversation with the remarkable Dean Helen Williams. Well, this is an absolute pleasure to be with you, Dr. Helen Williams. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Greg. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's just do some backup here. Dr. Williams, you are the Dean of the Graduate School of Psychology and Education at Pepperdine University. Yes, that I am now for the past six years. And if I understand right, the first African-American woman to hold a dean position at the grad level at Pepperdine? That is true. The first African-American woman to the first African-American leader. Central administration at Pepperdine, yes. I think this and many other things uniquely qualify you to give insight into what is going on psychologically in the world Uh, in these communities, in the black community. Uh, I am thoroughly looking forward to this conversation, to engage in it, to learn from it. Let me just share one vignette, one experience I had that I think sets us up well for this conversation. One of my classmates at business school taught me something, and he explained that if he didn't have a conversation with someone about him being black and them being white, it wasn't that they couldn't have a relationship, but there was a, a portion of who he was that just couldn't be available, that the relationship would tend to be at a certain sort of surface level. Yes. And that was news to me when he taught me this. This is years ago, but it was news because really I'd grown up with the idea that what you wanted to be was colorblind. You just, it, it doesn't matter. But he was saying, yeah, but it does matter just in a different way. And we've got to talk about it. 
So first of all, you know, let's say it this way. You're black, I'm white, let's talk about it. Yes, I like the way you say that. Uh, and your friend was absolutely correct. You know, we try to coexist in this environment called America and truly the rest of the world and find the best possible way of communicating with each other, relating to each other uh, so that we don't upset the apple cart, if you will. And that often means that the person of color, in this instance, the African-American, um, is inclined to and in some ways required to put a portion of who they are aside and live this schizophrenic kind of life so that we are accepted so that we are valued and appreciated, but truly we cannot be fully accepted, fully valued, fully appreciated until we can bring all of ourselves to the table. So we sit and we talk about anything and everything, but we don't talk about our blackness and your whiteness. We, we don't broach that and we do everything couched in the colonialized way, couched in your whiteness. We are appropriated, if you will. We are compromised. And so we often say uh, we leave part of ourselves at home. We go to work every day, but we leave a certain portion of ourselves at home. It is a joy when you have a friend who is ready for all of you. Yeah, that's a beautiful statement. A friend who is ready for all of you. What percentage do you feel is traditionally left at home? What percentage? If I had to put a number on it, I couldn't. Um, because if, in my mind, if you leave part of yourself at home, you've, you are not you. You know, so if we have to put a number on it, I could say half of myself. Wow. But I would say it's even more of that because I am identified, judged, communicated with based on the color of my skin. Yet that subject isn't broached. It's this immense part of every social interaction. Immense. But it's not only not talked about, we can't even talk about it not being talked about. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. In too many situations, in too many. It takes a long time to get to know someone, to be able to discuss it and to discuss it in its fullness. Some people who have experiences already can readily get to that point. Like you and I are talking about this now. <laughs> Sight unseen. We're talking about this now. It's a rare occasion that you can just jump into the deep water and just enjoy a conversation because, because some people will feel threatened. Um, they won't know what to do with this information. If this information that I receive from this other person runs counter to what I have been taught all my life, what do I do with this information? And so it creates this a situation where the person just doesn't want to address it, either knowingly or unknowingly. When I learned this information, 
the next person I worked with who was African-American, it was like right after being told about this. And I went there. But I'm telling you, it was a pretty scary moment for me to go there. <laughs> I thought, surely this will be offensive. You know, surely I'm, I'm going to be saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. But he responded, well, in a not dissimilar way to the way you just did. He's like, wow, well, that's good. Great. And, and, and I suppose in that moment, I realized, and, and again in this, it's not like it's not obvious for him. It's not like it's not obvious for you. Uh, by me saying it, it's just, well, great. I'm already dealing with this reality every day. Every day. Mm. You know, uh, someone said to me recently, and I think it's in uh, Dr. Kendi's latest article about how to be an anti-racist. I think it's in there where it's spoken of that um, America experienced the, one of its worst moments on 9-11. It was a moment when we all came together and we were all impacted in the same way. And it's a, it was a terrible experience, and we all know it was terrible. And every year on September the 11th, we all feel that in some way. Well, the African-American experiences 9-11 every day. Every day. And so when you approach your your next colleague and openly began the conversation, regardless as to how scary it was for you, it was, I'm sure, a delight. Wow, I get to talk about me in my fullness, who I am. I get to bring all of me to the table. It must have been a great moment for both of you, <laughs> for both of you. Please, please feel free to go deep with this conversation. Just to broach the subject you're saying is refreshing, different, and all this that you've been holding back, constantly keeping, you know, in a bottle somewhere. Yes. Gets to just be rather than constantly forced into a corner. Right. Because we're, we are acculturated to be according to someone else's standard, someone else's definition. And it's, it's impossible to be according to someone else's definition. It's, in my mind, a form of schizophrenia, forced social schizophrenia. People can't wait to get home to pick up their full selves again. <laughs> Phew, I'm home. I can be me now. All of me. I mean, you're describing walking on eggshells all the time. All the time. That you're a fragmented version of yourself where you're, I can't say this, I can't do that, I can't say it that way. It's like speaking a different language, being in a different country every day in the workplace. That's what you're saying. Sure, sure. And not just in the workplace. All the time, everywhere we go, yes. Wow. Yeah, you know, uh, in the Bible it says, uh, how do we sing a song, the Zion song in a strange land? Mm. Well, if we, if we don't sing the song, we'll go batty. We'll, we'll just lose it. We have to be able to sing Zion's song because we live in a strange land. 
You said something a moment ago that I want to double click on. You said that every day is like 9-11. I never heard that description, and I would not have imagined that intensity of feeling. It's every day. Well, it's every day, and it's it's to have this skin. And so it's it's every single day with every encounter. You are being measured, you are and measured according to someone else's standard. Mm-hmm. And we won't even begin to talk about whether one standard is better than the other because it isn't. It's just different. It's just different. But to be required to conform to a particular standard, and standard is a terrible word because it it, it implies measurement, mm. a way of doing things, a way of speaking, a way of... Okay, so we're speaking here and we're speaking the Queen's English, right? <laughs> we're attempting to. And um, when an African-American goes home or even in the workplace, when they see someone of color, there is a different kind of language that is spoken verbally and non-verbally because there's a different communication style in different communities. And so the African-American has to be really adept at adjusting from one communication style to the other at the drop of a hat. It's bilingual. It's bicultural. It truly is. It's multilingual and multicultural because there are a number of other different cultures in our society. And we all communicate differently. And so if you're going to climb the corporate ladder, if you're going to excel in whatever area you are working in, you have got to be able to manage this particular area. Again, I'm trying to find another word for standard. This this particular circumstance, you've got to be able to master that. You have to be able to master that other environment while you master your own at the same time. You're describing, I think, an additional layer on top of every other layer. So yes, you have to be competent at your job. Yes, you have to learn hierarchical systems in order to be able to figure out what your file leader wants and what their leader is trying to achieve, what the organizational goals are. There's all of that to learn. But you're saying in addition to that, There is another layer that you believe, imagine, experience is invisible for someone who's white because it's normal for them, but you have to learn it and dance within that additional non-natural cultural expectations. Right, exactly. And we're all human, but the African-American, the person of color is expected in America to be able to master all of them. Otherwise, it would often be said, I don't know, but I don't think John is, or shall I use, I don't think Jerome is uh, a good fit for our organization. We have to spend in this moment a lot of time and energy to decolonize our educational system, our medical system, our legal system. We have to decolonize every aspect of our society in order for this layer that we're speaking of to be lifted. 
in order for for every man and every woman to walk side by side and be considered equal, understood to be equal, we've got to decolonize all of this. When I travel, I you know I travel a lot. I fly around the world a lot, and within the U.S. especially, there are some places, and I won't name the places. Um, I'm not trying to knock on any particular place, but there are some places when I get off the plane, just the moment I walk into the airport, I can feel a change that's happened. <laughs> it's not that anybody that I see is being rude to anybody else. It's not, it's not on the surface in that way. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, let me name some specifics. Everybody in the airport that's a worker is African-American. Most of the people traveling are white. Okay, that's one distinction. Yeah. But I had this other moment when I'd just gone to the, you know, I was going to the bathroom. As I came out, there was a man talking to uh, the worker in the bathroom. So, again, the worker's African-American. The man's talking to him is white. The man speaking, in one level, was clearly being polite. He was stopping. He was taking the time to talk to him. But something of that interaction felt really off to me. And I think what I felt, and I could just be wrong, but was this condescension. And I felt that even in that interaction, which was, as I say, on the surface kind, almost more revealing of the assumed natural order of things, how things should be. Yes. When I share this, am I way off? Am, are you? Does this feel familiar to you? Talk to me about this. It's familiar. It's familiar. It's quite common. Um, some would call it a white patriarchal way of of managing, but it is often meant to be a good thing. It's meant to be a good thing that the, the white person in most, in many cases, is really trying to move to the next level of interaction with this African-American, this black individual. They're, they're, they realize that something has to change and they are open to making this change they feel safe doing it with someone that they are clear is not of the same socioeconomic level mm. uh, because that allows them the liberty of making this gesture, this positive gesture, but maintaining what they see as their superiority. Because if it goes wrong, you know, if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't work out the way they want it to, then they have that to fall back on. It can often be seen as a very condescending kind of interaction if, in fact, there's risk involved. There's risk involved when you've grown up in a society that for hundreds of years have existed with certain norms to change, recognizing those norms need to be changed and to actually begin the process of changing them, it's very risky because you have no idea what you're going to end up with. And that's why we say in education, when you are the professor of color in the classroom and you introduce discussions around race, color, and gender, you have the power as the person of color teaching, the leader. You've got 
you've got that leadership role, you have the power to deconstruct the realities of the white people in the room. But just like you want white people to respect and honor your humanity, you must do the same. So while you deconstruct their reality, you must do something to help them to rebuild. You can't leave them wounded, you know, going out into the world with nothing to hold on to. You see what I'm saying? You've got to have enough compassion, maybe compassion that hasn't been shown to you. You've got to have enough compassion to help that person heal once you have deconstructed their reality. It's such a valid point in any interaction with other people. I know Anna and I uh, once went through a class together and one of the psychological terms that was introduced was just the idea of monitoring an interaction with someone else, looking for whether you are being one up or one down (laughs) and trying to come back again and again to the center. So don't try to be above them, but you won't be below them. And, and I think that what's interesting is that as you try to live that, as we tried to live it with, uh, you know, in our own marriage, when we tried to live it with our children, when we tried to live it just with people in general, if you had previously had a relationship that tilted to being one up or one down, and you went now to center, to equal, it disturbs the relationship. it's uncomfortable for people involved because they're used to it being a certain way. And that's what I hear you describing is, well, if you're going to try to deconstruct the existing, it's going to be disturbing. You're not trying to be disturbing, but it's going to change everything in the rest of the interaction. And and you're saying, so be compassionate because, because even if what you're doing doesn't sound scary, doesn't sound unreasonable. Look, we're talking about equality. We're talking about just not being one up or one down together. It does disrupt a lot of the expectations involved. Does that sound right? It's absolutely right. And you see the old adage, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yeah. You may have the the power and you can deconstruct someone's reality. That doesn't give you the right. You don't have the power to leave them wounded. You must take on the good Samaritan role and help them heal. You must do that. You cannot do eye for eye. And that even that is an affront to the African-American who has been subjugated, demonized, demoralized for 400 years, whose ancestors have been slaughtered and hanged and maimed psychologically maimed, even to have the responsibility of helping someone else, helping the oppressor to heal, even that is an affront. I mean, I get what you just said, because it's violating to go and, okay, well, I'll lift you up when I feel like maybe it wasn't you, of course, but people for a long time Mm -hmm. have left me hurting. Now I introduce a little idea that, that now you feel damaged and I've got to come over there. Okay, well. Well, and that's what I think I heard you say when you said 9-11, what I, and I'm putting words in your mouth, so please correct me if I'm hearing it wrong. But I think what you're saying is every day you have to play the role 
not rather than just be yourself. Every day you're experiencing that. The 9-11 of it is, is slavery. The 9-11 of it is the oppression. You're not playing slavery, but you're still playing in the same system that at one time tolerated that and was built on that. And so you're still playing within that temp, you know, tempered down version of the experience from back then. Am I guessing this approximately right? You're, you're absolutely right. But it was a system that created that. The system created the racism and it upholds it even today. It's now even more of a, before it was a very direct uh, personal experience. Now it is more of a psychological experience that caused the ramifications to, to bleed into the next generation and the next generation. And that's why the Black Lives Matters movement is so important. It, you could call it what you will. It is the, the civil rights movement of the 60s. It's the Jim Crow. You know, it's the same revolution that has been occurring in our nation time and time and time again. We live today with the psychological ramifications of what happened 400 years ago because the systems remain in place that support what happened 400 years ago. I mean, it makes so much sense to me as a systems thinker from a, you know, just from a professional point of view that what you're saying would be the case. Systems are immensely powerful because they're invisible, they're the norms, but it's all invisible, right? Fish discover water last. It's all there in the you know, in the air, it has its impact, not because necessarily it's hard to dismantle it. It's, its greatest power, I think, in general systems is that we don't even see it. So you can't change it. You're not even aware of it. Mm-hmm. You're saying you do live with a much greater awareness of it. Yes. Then the, the average black person is going to feel that and see it more clearly than the average white person. Right. When we see it, there is an aha moment because that's where where you know the line is. (laughs) That when you see it, you know, so there's the line. I can't cross over that line or I'm going to have to figure out some other strategy to get across that line. And that strategy typically is to become more like the white person so that you can become more acceptable in their eyes, and then that line moves. It's it's a clear thing, another tragedy that is another moment when Black person has that experience. They are <laughs> they're traumatized yet again, and they realize that oftentimes it is the system, and they realize that the system is in place to keep them in place. I recall when I entered an institution and I was leading, every time I turned around, I was meeting someone that was new in my my division. And I wondered, how can this be? Because I'm the one that's responsible here. So how is it that we keep bringing new people into this division and I don't know anything about it? Hmm. 
realized that the system was set up so that if there was a vacancy, someone could recommend their friend or their cousin or their sister or someone, and they would fill that vacancy. And then I would be told, oh, here's, here's Jim. Jim is new. And, and I'm thinking, if something happens, I'm responsible. The leader, you know, you take the responsibility for the good and the bad, mostly the bad. So, so I checked the hiring process. I dismantled it and we rebuilt it together. And the first thing that happened was people went to the HR and said, she's taking away our power. She wants to get rid of all the white women and hire black men. Hmm. And I had to stand before the HR powers to be and explain my plan, even though my position was higher ranking than any of them. There was nothing that says, she's the leader, we do as she says. I had to explain to those who, oh my, I had to explain to others who on the pendulum of power and authority within the organization did not come close to my position and get their approval to move forward. <laughs> no, it ended up that they said, oh, we like this. Can we use this as a template? Can we borrow your system and build around it for our unit? Because it put equity in the hiring process. That's one of the very first uh, systems that has to be corrected. You can't see it, but you know it. When you hit that particular point, you know what has happened. And so that's where you you know you have to overcome that point, but it's also a point where you know you have to begin to reconstruct that system. Mm. Reconstruct rather than deconstruct. Mm -hmm. In telling that story, there was a moment you said, oh, my. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There was a lot in that, oh, my. Yes, because I felt it all over again. I, I experienced that moment all over. The humiliation of being the leader and having to report to others. And they go back to someone else. And then finally, it comes to me from the leader that's on the same level that I'm on. I could not sit down and have that conversation with my colleague. I had that conversation with people that reported to my colleague. And then it came, It was, I felt it all over again, mm. right? Ooh, oh my, because I couldn't say what I wanted to say. I couldn't engage in righteous indignation in that moment because it would have been counterproductive. Because the system would have pushed back so hard. Exactly. So you had to submit. Yes. Build it slowly just to get it to parity. Yes. You're going to feel tired. Go home exhausted every day because you're you 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 understand, Greg, you're doing you're doing more work than can than can be seen. Mm-hmm. Yes, because you're doing two jobs. You're doing the job you're paid to do. You're doing your work. And by your work, I mean your inner work. 
because you've got to maintain your 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 presence. You've got to maintain your persona. You've got to maintain all that is about you so that you can be productive, so that this system can eventually be fixed, reconstructed, so that countless others can win, can get beyond that point of revelation where they understand they can't go any further. If you are going to be a benefit to society as a whole, you have got to swallow all of that until you see it work. And then you have to make sure you put put, uh, systems, you put uh, processes and procedures in place so that once you walk away, it is not dismantled. It's tiring, yes. It's exhausting. <laughs> and, and I mean, again, back to systems thinking for a second. In every relationship, there is three. Me, there's you, and then there's the system. If we don't understand that there's the system, then we could end up with a very strange relationship. We could have a broken relationship thinking it's just each other, pointing fingers at each other, not recognizing that there is this, well, to use John Adams' term for the economy, the invisible hand, there's this invisible hand of this system affecting everything else. Yes. And you're saying it. you're confronted with it all through your life, all through your career, every day still, and every time you come at it, oh, there's that system again. Okay, I'm going to have to take a pause, fix that, put that system in its, you know, how it should be to be able to support this interaction equally and effectively for the next person who passes this way. Yes. And you have to be willing to fight for it because invariably someone will see what you're doing recognize that it means change and it may mean a redistribution of power and there will be pushback. Power concedes nothing without a struggle. I think that's Frederick Douglass, huh? Where there's so much alignment is just recognizing how systems don't give up easily. Systems want to maintain their current shape. You know, that they, they want to spring back to the existing forces that put them into existence as they are. I mean, I would say from a personal point of view that my biggest mistakes is, as a leader have been where I have announced something rather than worked it out together. And then you sort of announce it together because and there's there's some energy behind it and there's a feeling of alignment behind it. It takes longer. Or at least it feels like it takes longer because you can't just do the announcement. That's true. The execution is faster. It's basic strategic planning. Mm -hmm. Basic strategic planning. You get as many different people involved at the table and let them all give input, create this new uh, document, this new way of proceeding, have everyone agree on it. Have everyone sign on, sign on the dotted line, and then spread it out. Because you bring people that others trust to the table, and and it works. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I love that. L- let me just look at this system now with you from a different perspective. 
I want you to go back to the beginning. And I don't even mean when you were born. I mean, go back further and just tell me a little bit about your grandparents. <laughs> okay, I need to send you a letter I wrote to my GSEP, my Graduate School of Education and Psychology family. My grandparents were sharecroppers in South Carolina. I was born into the, a family of nine. I think it was nine of us. In We had a four-room home that sat up on cinder blocks in the deep woods of South Carolina. We lived on someone else's property, and every morning we would get up and uh, walk before dawn to the big road, the big dirt road. Someone would come along in a pickup truck, and we would get on the back of it and ride to a field, and we'd work all day, and then we would go home. I remember one day, and this is in the letter that I will send. I remember one day I was picking cotton with my grandmother and others, and I love to sing, always did. So I was singing. I was a good seven years old, and I was singing. And the man that drove the truck was now sitting in the back of the truck in a rocking chair, his legs crossed with a gun in his arm, holding it in his lap, right? But I'm just seven years old, singing away, you know. And the man said, who is that gal? Not that little girl, not that gal, that gal with a deep Southern accent. Who is that gal? And nobody said anything. And he said, make a hush. And my grandmother leaned over to me and said, baby girl, hush. You're going to get us all in trouble. And I didn't understand it, but I knew to follow directions. Mm -hmm. Never crossed grandma, right? <laughs> I knew to follow directions. Plus, the man had a gun. So, you know, we were living, we, my nucleus family, father, mother, couple sisters, living in Baltimore at the time, but we would go back to South Carolina every summer to help the family pick cotton, crop tobacco, dig potatoes, the whole nine yards. So September came, we went back to Baltimore, and my teacher said, write on this piece of paper, what you did all summer. Everybody in the class had to write this assignment. It was her way of judging our progress during the summer or the lack thereof, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I was excited because school to me was, was next to heaven. I'm still in school, right? I sit here now. And so anyway, I get, I, I get my paper pencil. I write my story about the cotton field. And I turned it in so excited because if anybody could make sense of it, my teacher could, because my teacher was next to God in my mind. <laughs> so the next day she handed out our papers. I'm so excited. She stood at my desk. I'm the last one to receive their papers. She stood at my desk. She leaned down over me and stared in my eyes and said, this did not happen. Wow. Don't you ever say this again. Do you hear me? Wow. Once again, I knew to be quiet. 
I knew not to say anything, but I was crushed because this, it, this did happen. This was my truth. When I got home, my mother always said, Helen, what did you learn in school today? And I gave her my paper and I told her my story with tears streaming down my face. And she held me really close and she said, Helen, that is your truth. It did happen. That is your truth. You hold on to it. Don't let anybody take that away from you. And so that takes me all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. We as African-Americans have all these truths that we are not allowed to speak of. We are not allowed to live out our truths. We have to take someone else's truth and make it our own. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. My grandparents were the greatest. They lived through that experience. And that was minor compared to what they experienced, you know? And yet they were men and women of honor. My grandfather was a Methodist preacher. And every Sunday, he he had a circuit. He went to several different churches, and he would preach. When we came back to the South during the summers, we were his, we, my sisters and I, were his choir from up north. And so we would sing for him. We would practice, get our songs ready so that we could go with Granddaddy and, and sing for him as he preached. And so... I don't know if you know, I am an ordained elder in the AME church. And I think that's that's where I got my, you know, that nurtured my calling even then. When you saw his powerful person, character, leadership, and felt uh, something inside of you, yes, this. Yes, absolutely. To see him get up and work his fingers to the bone on someone else's property and be called boy, even though he may have been older than that person who owned the property, to be emaciated at every turn and yet be a man of honor, yet to love the Lord with all his heart and try to bring others to Christ. Ah, my granddaddy, <laughs> and my grandmother who stood beside him. Imagine, I mean, okay, beautiful black woman. Her skin was soft and beautiful. Big smiling eyes, long, beautiful black hair. I thought my grandmother was made of gold, and she baked the best biscuits. <laughs> she could turn berries and blackberries into a meal, you know, my grandmother, too. Imagine the pain and the suffering that they endured. Mm, That's why. That's why I work so hard. That's why I burn the midnight oil. That's why I stand and bear the strain of this double consciousness, because they've worked and they bled for me to be here. And I will not let them down. The next generation will have it easier. I will not let them down. 
<laughs> get too carried away. No, I loved everything you just shared. First of all, just the anger of injustice. Even before you told that story, the word that kept coming to mind for me as you were describing this system and this dance and how careful you have to be and playing this game and all of that, the word was suffocating. <laughs> you know, and of course that has these extra layers right now, of course, right? I can't breathe and all that that gives language to something. But, but, but then you tell that story of this did not happen to you. I think in all dysfunction, in all damage that people experience, either the first or the last offense is not being able to speak the truth about it. Right. Yes. That, that, and I think a lot of people listening to this can relate to that feeling in a variety of different experiences. And at some point, I would tend to believe that at some point, everyone, as I say this, I'm thinking multiple times, maybe daily, we make a choice. We have to choose if we're going to say it, if we're going to live it, if we're going to speak it, or if we're just going to swallow it. Swallowing it creates, it emaciates us all over again. It traumatizes us all over again. Making the choice to speak it and speak it in love, in love. That is the greatest one of the greatest gifts that the African-American community brings to our nation, it is the ability to love thy neighbor as thyself, to, to love the oppressor, to look beyond their own hurt, their own pain, forgive and love. It is what has kept us alive, kept us going. Oh, yes, we have fought back many times in violence, and it hasn't gained what love has gained. I just was listening to a, a talk over the weekend. Uh, it was President Nelson that said it in a, in a speech and in the NAACP national meeting in Detroit. He said, we, we don't have to look like each other, but we can love each other. And you, you're absolutely right that what even makes this possible this literal conversation that you and I are having today is because lots of people involved over generations chose love so that it even could happen. Yeah. <laughs> this has come by way of sacrifice. Yes. You never allow, oh, who said this? These quotes are running through my head. You never allow your hater to bring you down to his or her level. Always reach up. Always reach up. And love is up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, love is up. We have identified the ouch. We've identified the strategic planning. Those are two in our conversation right here today. And, and I think even right to the beginning, when I think about the whole conversation we're having, to, to be able to start a conversation simply by saying, acknowledging it, not thinking that that's being insensitive, saying, 
you're black, I'm white, let's talk about it. I think is its own thing because you start to say this thing that we could not talk about before. Uh, as, as, as someone who's white, you don't want to talk about it because you think it's insensitive and insulting and you're not supposed to see. <laughs> On the other side, you feel like maybe you can't talk about it because, well, that's the system. And I suppose similar things of, of feeling I have to play this game and I'm keeping myself at home and I'm not, I'm trying to play by these rules that we've been talking about. For both reasons, we the conversation doesn't happen. But I think, I hope the people listening to this will feel encouraged that they can start the conversation just exactly as directly as this and are more likely than not to have a really positive interaction as a result. You know, um, when we say, look, we have the out, we have the strategic plan, and we have let's talk, why don't we change that to can we talk? I like that. We need to ask permission because we don't know where the other person stands in that moment, you know. You say, okay, I need to have to, to choose to have this conversation when we have it. Yes, yes, yes. It's really important distinction. The willingness to be open, open to, you know, whatever the conversation brings and to make the changes that the conversation reveals. I want to take one one more angle about this, the, the system that we've been talking about, this theme, and there's something really meaningful going on here as we learn, even in the midst of all of this, what what, what is chaotic on the surface right now, underneath mm-hmm. all of that, I think good things are coming. I think that that we will discover more of who we are individually. We will discover more of who we are in community. That even as these things are look like they're all just breaking to pieces, uh, being dismantled, as you've been saying, uh, mm-hmm. we, I think there's a, there's a, there's a you know, uh, I can't remember who said it, but come my friends, it is not too late to build a newer world. That really genuinely good things are coming. That as we break down these barriers between us and between the past. Like we, I, I just say in a general sense, special things are coming. That's how I feel. I hope even in the midst of what seems quite hopeless sometimes. Yes, yes, yes. I love talking with you. Um, the Bible is all about redemption. It's all about restoration. The Freedmen's Bureau, it's about redemption and restoration Jeremiah 1, God is speaking to Jeremiah and he tells them, before you were born, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you came forth, I ordained you and sanctified you to be a prophet to the nations. It goes on to say that Jeremiah's job as prophet to the nations is to pull down, to destroy to cast down, and then it says to build up. We've got to dismantle the broken. We've got to dismantle the that which is wrong. We have to destroy the work of the enemy and then rebuild his kingdom. What Satan means for bad, God will turn it around for our good. I think we I think you're on to something. This this looks bad now, but out of the Ashes comes. 
it's it's so beautiful what you're saying. Amen to everything you're saying. I want to I want to leave you with a quote here that I think speaks so aligned with what you just said about redemption and and reimagination and recreation and the, that endless process until we become what we're supposed to be. It's from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Listen to this. It's so beautiful. He said, during the darkest days of apartheid, I used to say to P.W. Botha, the president of South Africa at the time, that we had already won. And I invited him to join the winning side. All the objective facts were against us. The past laws, the imprisonments, the tear gassing, the massacres, the murder of political activists. But my confidence was not in the present circumstances, but in the laws of God's universe. That is what had upheld the morale of our people to know that in the end, good will prevail. It was these higher laws that convinced me that our peaceful struggle would topple the immoral laws of apartheid. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for what you represent. Thank you for teaching me. Thank you for helping this conversation go forward. For all those that are listening to this, give us the final word. You bring up Desmond Tutu. Desmond says, I am not interested in picking up crumbs of compassion thrown from the table of someone who considers himself my master. I want the full menu of rights. Thank you so much, Dr. Williams. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for spending the time. Thank you for this essential conversation. Greg, it was my pleasure. And there we are with Dean Williams. How can you not be touched by it? How can you not be moved by those stories, by that insight about how different it is, how different it feels when you really get inside someone else's experience? I, I didn't know that 50% of someone like Helen is left at home. I didn't understand how significant a tax it is in every conversation to have to weigh every word, every style of communication, the immensity of that task, that additional burden has been borne by her for every day and every month and all these years and demonstrates considerable success in over and above what we already would recognize on the surface. Please continue this conversation. We're just beginning it. We're just realizing that in our time, in this generation, in this era, we've got to re-enter this conversation. It's not something that was solved and resolved. So please continue this conversation, this important, vital, essential conversation. Do it with other people. Do it with your design partner as you seek to design a life where every voice has value, where every person matters. And of course, we need to say it particularly here, that black lives are essential. I hope you'll join me on this ongoing conversation. The podcast is just a spark each week to help us have a meaningful conversation, to help us really think about what matters and to make sure that we use this precious, excuse me, but pathetically short amount of time we get to have on this Blue Globe to do something that we're proud of, to do something that we feel 
made a difference, to do something that blesses the lives after us, people that won't even remember us, won't even know our names, but we made it better than it otherwise would have been because we are here. Please continue to support what we're doing here by uh, subscribing, getting other people to subscribe to the podcast. Let's have a conversation that becomes a movement that makes a difference in your life. Go to essentialism.com and uh, sign up for the newsletter so that you can receive specific questions and thoughts and quotes that will help you to be able to facilitate this conversation, almost like a, a podcast book club. Because in the end, if you don't prioritize your life and your conversations, someone else will.